Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mummy Movie Podcast, where we are looking at the 2023 animated film, Mummies. During my research for this episode, I found an article that claimed that this was the second most successful Spanish animated film of all time. I will admit, I was a little bit sceptical about this, largely because from what I could see, there weren't any sources in this article. But after doing a bit of poking around, I think it might actually be true. The only purely Spanish animated film that I could find that was more financially successful than this one is called Tad the Lost Explorer from 2012. So I think that's actually quite a cool fact. It's nice to see an Egyptian themed film doing that well and regardless of whether I personally like this film or not, I do hope it gets a few people interested in the subject. After all, for me personally, there's a good chance I would never have become an Egyptologist if it was not for the likes of the 90s Mummy remake with Brendan Fraser and the likes of Raiders of the Lost Ark as well. I think it's very easy to focus on the negative of these films and say they're very inaccurate, but ultimately they do serve as inspiration for certain people. In terms of the format for this episode, I'm trying something a little bit different. We shall start with the historical accuracy section, and then I shall simply just review the film. Basically, I've found that the background information part of these episodes seems to be the least popular part. So I'm going to remove it and just kind of say the interesting facts as they come up naturally. I might still have this section in future episodes, but only if I really think it's worth it. For this one, I really don't think I need an entire section to tell you that the English version of this film stars Joe Thompson, Eleanor Tomlinson and Sean Bean. However, one thing that is not going anywhere is my dramatic intro. Right. You are living in the land of the dead, where you were once a famous charioteer. 
Now, due to a decree by the pharaoh who rules over this realm, you must take his daughter's hand in marriage. He gives you a ring and tells you to keep it safe until the wedding. If you lose the ring, your eyes will be plucked from their sockets. You try to keep it safe. However, it is stolen by an archaeologist from the land of the living. And as such, you must make your way up to the surface in order to retrieve the ring. But whilst on the surface, you must make sure that no one knows you and your companions are mummies. Okay, so as said a moment ago, we will now move on to the historical accuracy section. The first thing we see in this film are the very conveniently vague words, a long time ago. Then there is a chariot race where we find out our main character, Thut, was a famous charioteer. Chariot racing was not a thing during Pharaonic Egypt, though there is some evidence of it from the Roman period just after Pharaonic Egypt had fallen. However, even then there is only evidence for it in one place in the entirety of Egypt, the Hypodrome of Alexandria. So, for those who don't know, Alexandria is a city in northern Egypt. It is still around today, and during the Roman period it was actually the most important city in all of Egypt. This is largely because, at this time, it served as a trading point between many different civilizations. This was especially helped by the fact that, at this time, Egypt had a huge surplus of wheat, and this was exported to places like Rome and other areas of the Mediterranean. When it came to the Hypodrome of Alexandria, this was created by Ptolemy the Great, who reigned from between 305, maybe 304 BC, until 282 BC. During his reign, the Hypodrome was mainly used as a theatre, it was only converted into a chariot racing circuit during the Roman period, as kind of already implied. When it came to sports and leisure, the ancient Egyptians instead had things like wrestling, tug-of-war, and hunting and fishing. However, one of the few spectator sports in the country was actually bullfighting. These bullfights were not like the kind found in Spain today. Rather than pitting man versus beast, the fights were instead beast versus beast. During these fights, there was also a referee armed with a stick in order to break up anything that could cause a fatality. I'm going to admit, I do not envy that job. Slightly later in the film, a little bit after this chariot race, we are introduced to the main villain, Lord Carnaby, and he is very stereotypically colonial. Not only is he wearing a bucket hat, but he is also wearing a full, light brown suit, which may explain why he's always in a bad mood. After all, I think I'd probably be in a bit of a bad mood if I had to wear a full suit in the Egyptian desert. However, it is not just his appearance which is incredibly colonial, but also his approach to archaeology. At the beginning, he opens a sealed tomb without taking any notes or photographs whatsoever. In fact, it is clear that he is not looking to accurately document and learn from the past. He is instead looking for shiny things. Near the beginning of the film, he finds a small gap in a coffin, 
Then later on, he explores this strange void in what initially looks like quite a non-destructive way. He sends a tiny robot through it. That robot climbs down into the realm of the dead and ends up in Thut's, I guess like, trophy room? It might be supposed to be his tomb, I'm not really sure. However, the point here is that then Lord Carnaby goes back to his colonial ways. Not only does he look around and go, oh look, a lovely ring, I'll take that. But then for no reason whatsoever, he then makes the machine remove some dynamite and blows the place up. I mean, don't get me wrong, I know he's supposed to be the bad guy, but is he not aware that he's also going to be blowing up a lot of the treasure if he does that as well? There's literally no reason for this. Then, somehow, even though there have been no interactions at all with the Egyptian government, he just takes all of the stuff from the tomb, which has directly come from the realm of the dead, and just takes it back to good old Blighty. Then, in London, he just opens a museum display with all of the stuff, and everyone's just fine with that. Then, later still, he decides he wants a living mummy for his display, and tries to kidnap the Princess Nefer. And again, everyone in the world of the living is just kind of like, yeah, do what you want, this is fine. <laughs> it's highly illegal what he's doing here, and just no one cares. Okay. Let's talk a little bit about the land of the dead in the film. First of all, the land of the dead is underground, and this is true for most of Egyptian history. I've spoken about this before on the podcast, though admittedly not for a while. Basically, to understand how the dead came to life in the afterlife, we need to understand something about the character of Ra, the sun god, and his daily and nightly journey. So, Ra's light was believed to bring forth life and protection. Every day he was born in the east. He would travel across the sky, and as he did, he would grow older. Until he would die and sink into the west. Then, he would travel through the underworld. During this part of the journey, he would pass through caverns filled with the blessed dead. Basically, the righteous who had died. The trip through each of these caverns would take one hour, but for the blessed dead living there, it would be an entire lifetime. During this, because of his light enveloping the cave, the blessed dead would come to life and live much how they had on Earth, though admittedly with some of the hardships taken away. Then when Ra had passed through their cavern, they would once again be plunged into darkness. They would return to their slumber until the next night when the entire cycle would repeat itself. These caverns were not supposed to be dark and dreary. They were supposed to be very similar to the land of the living. And so, the depiction in this film of the underworld being vibrant and full of life is not entirely inaccurate. However, it is noticeable that there is a bit of a mishmash of different eras here. We see pyramids which were more common in the Old Kingdom, then we see large, seemingly new kingdom and Ptolemaic temples. Further, as already spoken about, we then have the chariot racing, which seems to have arrived in Egypt with the Romans. On top of that, there seems to be a fair amount of Armana iconography, which is particularly out of place. To explain why, we need to go back to the new kingdom and the reign of a very controversial pharaoh named Archonaton. There is much debate over his reign, but there are a few things that we can say for certain. 
Firstly, where ancient Egypt and its religion was very conservative by nature, Akhenaten most certainly was not. Secondly, whilst there are arguments as to whether he tried to make Egypt monotheistic or not, it is absolutely certain that he suppressed several Egyptian gods, most notably Amun, and placed the Aten, which is the disc of the sun, above all. During his reign, the Aten was depicted as the disc of the sun, and from it came rays of light with hands attached to each. Some of these hands held items such as unks, so the symbol for life, which were extended to Akhenaten and the royal family. Although the Aten had been around before the reign of Akhenaten, and had gradually been growing more popular over time, it is noticeable that this type of art style only appears with the reign of Akhenaten. And it's also noticeable that the god faded away after the death of Akhenaten and the subsequent rulers. It was basically completely gone within a generation after his death. Then, starting with Tutankhamun, his probable son, the traditional gods of Egypt were reinstated. I'm going to leave my discussion on this here, as this is a subject that at some point I would like to write an episode on. However, the point I'm trying to make is this type of art would not have been present at this time. I will say, if you want to know more about this right now, the History of Egypt podcast has covered this period extensively. Also, although he's not an Egyptologist, there is a pretty good YouTube video on this by the channel Religion for Breakfast. I shall put links for these in the bibliography below, so the one in the episode description. Moving on, the main plot for this film sees Thut having to get back a wedding ring. Guess what? Wedding rings did not exist in ancient Egypt, they were a Roman invention. Also, at one point, we see priests in a temple picking Nefer's husband with the use of a phoenix bird. Again, this is purely fictional, though I will admit it would be cool. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. Someone asks you how you met your husband or your wife, and you just get to go, well, a phoenix bird sent by the gods put us together be pretty badass, although admittedly they probably would also back away quite slowly. <laughs> um, anyway, instead, normally in ancient Egypt, marriages would have been arranged by the parents, and they would have been beneficial to both families. However, realistically, when it comes to Nefer, she's supposed to be the daughter of the pharaoh. In fact, she's shown as like the primary daughter, and as such, it would be more likely she'd have to marry her own brother in order to keep the bloodline pure. You gotta keep up those deformities, after all. In the film, it's also claimed that Thut will have his eyes scooped from his sockets if he refuses. And again, this is purely fictional. Basically, as is pretty standard in most films, the historical accuracy, although not necessarily great to begin with, goes to another level of inaccurate when it interferes with the actual plot. Finally, one of the main characters in the film is called Sekhem. He is a young child who also has a pet crocodile. Interestingly, Sekhem and all of the Egyptian children in the film for that matter are completely bald except for a sidelock of hair. In ancient Egypt, this was called the sidelock of youth, and indeed it was only worn by children. On top of this, Sekhem seems to carry a boomerang around with him wherever he goes. Boomerangs did indeed exist in ancient Egypt, and did so even before pharaonic Egypt. 
They were sometimes used in war. For instance, there is evidence for the female pharaoh, Hatshepsut, sending troops to the land of Punt, and some of these seem to have had boomerangs. Though, more commonly, they were used for the hunting of birds instead. In terms of the pet crocodile, although I'm not sure about it being the pet of a small child, its presence in the afterlife can be argued to make sense. In Egypt, there are literally millions of animal mummies. In fact, there are far more animal mummies than there are human ones. In fairness, there are some instances of animals being mummified to accompany their master into the afterlife. You know, pets, that kind of thing. Though in all honesty, this isn't that common, and a far more common type of animal mummy is known as a votive offering. Animal votive offerings are a relatively late invention in ancient Egypt, seemingly becoming incredibly important after 1000 BC. Generally, although there is a fair amount of debate about this, the idea was that the animal, usually brought up in the precinct of a temple by the priests, was then slaughtered and mummified. People would then come to the temples and would purchase these animal mummies. Then, on rare occasions, they would attach a note to the mummy. Or it seems more common they would speak a message to the mummy, and the idea was that the animal would be able to carry that message to the god they represented. So, for instance, a cat might be the votive offering of the cat-headed goddess, Bastet. A dog might be the votive offering of Anubis. Or, in the case of a crocodile, they would likely be taking a message to the crocodile-headed god, Sobek. So... Overall, although there are some Egyptian themes here that are, well, kind of accurate, many of them are pretty incidental. For instance, showing the afterlife as a colourful and vibrant location is pretty accurate, but it's almost certainly only betrayed this way because it's a children's film. On top of that, although it would be possible for there to be a crocodile in the afterlife, once again, it's almost certainly just been included because it's, well, a bit Egyptian-y. Though, in fairness, there are one or two points in the film that do seem to be intentionally correct. For a start, all of the children in the film have a side lock of youth, whilst none of the adults do. This is accurate. Further, Sekhem has a boomerang, which was a weapon used in ancient Egypt. However, on the downside, we have a big mishmash of different eras in Egypt here. For instance, we have pyramids from the Old Kingdom, the huge temples of the New Kingdom and Ptolemaic period, and the main character being a charioteer, which would have only really been possible during the Roman period. On top of that, we have wedding rings, which were not a thing in ancient Egypt. And finally, even when it comes to the modern day in the film, not only are the archaeological practices here absolutely terrible, I mean, there's no documentation, and, well, dynamite is used all the time, but also, no one seems to have any issues with the villain just taking treasure out of Egypt. Okay, we have now arrived at the review section, so here I shall simply go over the film, saying what I liked and disliked, and then rate it out of 10. In terms of the beginning, historical accuracy aside, the chariot race was, you know, fun enough. Basically, in this scene, we see Thut, the main character, having a crash during the race. Although a little generic, this gives our hero a fear to overcome by the end of the film, which is, you know, ultimately a good thing. 
After all, it's often hard to empathise with people when they have no flaws whatsoever. This just kind of makes him more relatable. Further, although there are one or two things about Thut that I don't particularly like, overall I do think he's a likeable character and one that's quite good as well. One of the first things we see him do is help a little old lady across the street. Again, this is a bit generic, but it also shows what kind of a character he is quite effectively. In fact, I would even argue a scene like this was needed, as otherwise, up until this point, he's just been shown as a bit of a famous show-off. So something was needed just to make him seem a little bit more grounded. There were also a few little parts that did make me chuckle. For instance, at one point, someone tries to take a selfie with Thut. Basically, they just hold a mirror on the end of a stick and then quickly draw a portrait. In another scene, we see priests using a magic fountain to find a husband for Princess Nefer. At the beginning, this fountain is deliberately made to look like the Stargate from, well, Stargate. This is really fun and a nice little callback as the first Stargate film was actually set in ancient Egypt. In fact, it's very much a film I intend to cover at some point this year. Now, scenes like this may not seem that important in the grander scheme of things, but ultimately they are quite fun, and having a lot of fun little things can lead to quite a big difference. After all, imagine a Shrek film without all of the little pop culture references. Would it still be good? Yeah, I reckon it would be. Would it still be a classic? Hmm, less certain about that. Further, although the animation in the film is hardly outstanding, it is charming enough. I especially love the design of the pet crocodile, as he is undeniably very cute. When it comes to the villain, Lord Carnaby, I like that they fashion him after the archaeologists of the colonial past. Are such archaeologists weird, funny and goofy? <laughs> Personally, yeah, I think they are. Are they also very dated with questionable ethics by modern standards? Definitely, yes. So, that's kind of what you want from a villain in a film like this, surely. I think he's, he's great for that role. Moving on, although I do have some issues with some of the characters in the film, I will admit I was still invested in them by the end of the film. I still wanted to know what was going to happen to Thut and Nefer. I wanted to see if they were going to fall in love. Although, to be honest, I did think that that whole plot was about as obvious as the sun rising. <laughs> but the point is, with many films I review, I've lost interest by the end of the film, so I do have to give it props for that. However, unfortunately, there are also quite a few issues here. Firstly, I was not a fan of Princess Nefer as a character. I just felt she came off as unnecessarily horrible, and I don't get why I was supposed to like her. The first time we see her, she almost runs over Thut and will not take any of the blame for this. He's literally helping a little old lady get her shopping, and she's just horrible. Then later, when it is revealed that Thut will have his eyes scooped out if he refuses to wed her, she tries to convince him by saying that at least he will have his other senses. I mean, don't get me wrong, I did laugh at this a little bit, but it definitely wasn't for the right reasons. That's absolutely horrible, and it's not something I want from one of my main heroes in the film. And don't get me wrong, I get characters are supposed to grow as time goes on, but I think there's limits to that, and if someone comes off as completely horrible to begin with, there's a bigger mountain to climb, let's put it that way. 
Further, I felt that Nefer's part in the film, outside of the love story, was a bit of a mess. Basically, she ends up going to the world of the living, where she has to decide whether she should stay and become a famous singer, or go back to the land of the dead. This may have worked, I suppose, if the songs were, you know, good, but at best they were just fine. This whole section of the story went on for far too long, and it really didn't make me like her any more than I already did. On top of that, this whole story made me dislike Thutmore, as, well, he, he just gains an irrational hatred for Ed, an agent who wants to sign Nefer. I'm not sure if I missed something here, but I really don't get their feud at all. I suppose you could argue that Thut is jealous of Ed. I suppose you could argue that Ed is interfering with his mission to get the wedding ring. But they really don't make it obvious what Thut has against him. It just comes off as very random. Further, although I did like the design of the villain, Lord Carnaby, I will admit, overall I felt he was a pretty weak villain. For a start, his plans are overly convoluted. It's fair to say that his goals here are to gain fame and riches. This is absolutely fine for a villain, I have no issues with that. But why does he need to capture a living mummy to do this when he literally has uncovered the entrance to the underworld? And also, when he does eventually enter the underworld, he tries to kidnap the pharaoh. Surely he has more to gain from just telling people about the underworld. That would be huge. That would be like the find of Tutankhamun times a million. It just feels like if you put a moment's thought into anything he does in this film, none of it makes any sense whatsoever. Also, whilst there are some nice little jokes here, as I've already said, the film does have a habit of overdoing them. For instance, in one scene, we see the characters walking like an Egyptian, much like they do in the Bangle song. This is a nice, silly little joke. Then they do it again. Okay, fine. Then they do it again. Alright, maybe that's enough. And then every time an Egyptian character crashes into a wall or falls over, they land in that position and it just all gets a bit tiresome. Or at least it did for me anyway. When it came to the reviews for this film, they were pretty mediocre. On Rotten Tomatoes, it has a critical score of 53% though admittedly an audience score of 88%. If I'm honest, I don't tend to put too much faith in critical scores here, as ultimately, what do I care if a 65-year-old film critic likes this animated children's film or not? It's not designed for them, so of course they're going to give it a bad review, that's just obvious. Meanwhile, the audience score is almost certainly going to be made up of scores from people who the film is targeted towards. It just makes sense that if you see a film, you think it looks good, you'd look at the audience score as opposed to the critical one here. At least in my opinion, anyway. However, regardless, on IMDb, it has a 5.9 out of 10. Here, some of the reviews saw the film as a little bit bland, whilst others just felt it was a fun family movie. For myself, I agree that this is a relatively easy film to watch, and although it does have some issues, it isn't without its charm either. However, I also feel the film is far too predictable, and I didn't feel that Princess Nefer was particularly likeable. Further, I wasn't a big fan of the whole part where she tries to become a singer. This is partly because there were one too many parts of the story that just didn't make any sense. But honestly, more to the point, I just didn't feel that the songs were good enough to warrant it. 
Though, admittedly, despite all this, I was still interested in the film by the end, and I did still want to see how Thut and Nefer's story was going to play out. Overall, although I do not feel that this film is worth going out of one's way to see, if it were to come on the TV on a lazy Sunday afternoon, for instance, I do feel it would be worth sitting down and watching. I would give this film a 5.5 out of 10. Thank you very much for listening. I certainly hope you enjoyed this episode, and if you did, please consider liking, subscribing, leaving a comment. And join me next time, where we shall be travelling to Mexico to look at Ancient Evil, Scream of the Mummy, otherwise called the fantastically misleading name of Bram Stoker's The Legend of the Mummy 2. Interestingly, for a short period of time, this was actually the lowest rated film on IMDb, so let's see if it's any good, I guess. I hope you all have a fantastic week, and see you then. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.